Hey everybody, Daniela here, and today I am going to answer a really difficult question. Um, it's one I've avoided really discussing publicly um, until now, but I have gotten five, question, five requests just this morning kind of asking me questions of why I love Christianity and different things like that. So for those of you who know me, um, I was raised in a Christian home. My father's family were um, Catholic and my mother's family were Methodist. So I grew up in a very, very religious background. My parents were youth pastors. Many of you guys know me. Um, I grew up practically living in the church. And so many people have found this very um, surprising. And a lot of people have asked questions as to why I made the decision to leave Christianity. And although I've been, you know, very opening, open about practicing Judaism, I did not publicly make a statement as to why I made the decision to leave Christianity or why, um, you know, where, where that came from. And so I've been asked it probably 500 times in the last probably three years. And so I figured it was time to finally just kind of be vulnerable and open and discuss why I made the decision to leave Christianity. And most people who know me know that I was a very, very devout Christian. I was very, um, very, very, very serious about my faith, very active. I went on missions trips, church camp, you name it. I was very, very active in the church. And so people were very shocked. And so I guess I, this is my time to kind of speak. I want to also preface this with um, stating that I have the utmost respect for people who have different faiths, people who come from a Christian background. I'm incredibly grateful for my upbringing. It established many of the morals and the standards that I live by. And so I have, I have in no way am doing this to disrespect anyone else, but I want to make sure that, um, I get this kind of message out clearly and as respectfully as I possibly can. So I wanted to explain a couple reasons of why I left Christianity and why I converted to Orthodox Judaism. So here we go. I made myself a few notes so that way if I get a little confused. So as my journey began, um, it started with noticing that a lot of the church holidays um, coincided with pagan holidays. And so this was very interesting for me. So I began searching, uh, myself and a group of women started looking into the origins of Christmas and Easter was kind of where it started. And as we began to seek, we realized that it was these, these holidays were all aligned with pagan holidays. And they were all aligned with the winter and summer or winter and spring solstice and Easter is actually named after Ishtar, which is a pagan deity. And so as I began to look at this, and I began to look at um, the history of the Easter, the, the sunrise Easter morning service was actually a pagan um, spring solstice activity that was done by the pagans that was implemented in um, by Constantine. And so I really started going through church history, and the more I did it, the more I was bothered because there was a very distinct difference between what the church was doing and what the Torah and the Bible or the Old Testament actually stated was what God wanted. And so um, God over and over again kept saying, don't mix the pagan with the, with my word. Don't pitch my ways with the world's ways. And so the more and more I realized, you know, Christmas being on winter solstice and when the sun is born and then the sun dies, um, coinciding with when Jesus was born and Jesus died, and that those days were set actually um, by the church and weren't his actual dates of birth and all of these different things. So um, church history was kind of my beginning. Um, 
my family is also of Hispanic origin, and as I began to research um, the history of the church in, in Mexico and realizing that many of the people who fled from Spain um, were actually Jewish, and they had been forced to convert, and they had been forced to take on Christianity against their will by fear of death during the Inquisition. And so I, this really made me start looking at church history and what why I believe what I believe and and it and you know sometimes we have to sit back and step back and look at why do I believe what I believe and what does that mean you know do I believe this because I was born a Christian do I believe this because I was born a Catholic do I believe this because I was a Protestant and so as I began to look at the, the history of the church and as it had changed both Protestant and Catholicism and lining that up with what you know the Old Testament had said and what God had actually stated originally I was finding a lot of contradictions and so I kind of wrote down just a quick list of things that in my searching I found, which were things that for me I was I was very um, surprised to find. So the first thing was obviously Jesus's virgin birth. So you know, we we're taught from a very young age that, you know, that Mary was a virgin and that she, you know, this was an immaculate conception and that he was born completely, um, you know, without a male involved, everything. And so that was, you know, what we were taught, that there was this miracle that, you know, that God had done. And so as I began to search and realize, um, you know, Psalms twenty two sixteen. I'm sorry, wrong verse, sorry, Isaiah seven fourteen is the verse in the Old Testament that states that a virgin will be born and that, you know, a child will come and a virgin will give birth. And, you know, this is the verse that everything is based off of Jesus's virgin birth. And so what I did is I actually went back to Isaiah seven fourteen and I looked at it in the Hebrew and the original language is actually very different. So the original language uses the word betzhula. Betzhula just means maiden. It does not mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it uses Alma, and Alma does not mean virgin. Betzhula means virgin. So it was very interesting um, as I started to look at this verse that in context, this verse just said that a young maiden is with child and will give birth and we will call her na his name Emmanuel. And so the, the context of the entire verse is showing in present tests and it's also showing that um, that is just a young maiden is going to give a, babe, a birth to a child, not a virgin. Um, the word in Hebrew for virgin is betula, and the word used in this text is alma, which simply means a maiden, a maiden of, of marrying age, basically is what it means, a young, a young girl. And so that was a little confusing. So then I started looking at what were the qualifications for the Jewish Messiah. So the Jewish Messiah, obviously everyone knows, has to be from the line of David. And so King David's line, it has an unbroken line, all the way down through from son to son to son to son to son um, for the kingship. And so that kind of was a light bulb to me because I went, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't have a father. And yet in the New Testament, we see two different lineages given that are completely different. I think it's Mark and Luke and they're completely different. They're not the same. Matthew and Luke, excuse me. Um, and they lead to Joseph, who is not his father. And so as I began, I was like, wait a minute, how is this possible? How is he from the line of David if he is not actually Joseph's son? So that was other questions for me. So I was like, wait a minute, how can he be the king? And so and then I started looking at what is a Messiah? What is What does this mean? What does this word Messiah mean? And what did it mean to the Jews? The Jews, after all, were the people that were waiting on a Messiah. We should know what they thought of what a Messiah was. And so then I went and I started looking at what the Messiah was. And the Messiah, literally, Mashiach means the anointed one. So the one that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, lays his hands on and anoints as the king. He is anointed with oil and he is 
he becomes the king. And so as I started to look at that, I went, okay, wait a minute. Jesus was never declared king. He, he never became king. I'm, I'm confused. So if he, if Joseph isn't his father, he's not from the line of David, he can't be the king. And either he wa she was a virgin or wasn't a virgin because Alma doesn't mean virgin. So whether or not he was, she was a virgin or not is really, is really irrelevant because it requires a father to be from the line of David in order for him to be the Messiah. And Jesus didn't meet that qualification. Either it was immaculate conception or David was, or, or, or Joseph was the father, in which case it wasn't a virgin birth. So neither of those two stories um, worked for me. And so it led to a lot of questions. So the next thing I started looking for was all of the prophecies that proved that Jesus was the Messiah. So this was really important to me. Um, there's 365 prophecies that prove that he is the Messiah. And so I began to dig through all of them and really look at them in context. And so one of them that I went immediately to was, and he pierced his hands and feet, right? Psalms 22:16 states that, you know, and they pierced my hands and feet. And clearly we all knew this is a, a prophecy that Jesus's hands and feet would be pierced. And so I went to the original Hebrew of the verse and I began to look at it. And as I read the verse, I was in shock in Hebrew because it actually says ka-ari. Ka means like, ari means lion, ari is a lion. Ka-ari at my hands and feet, like a lion at my hands and feet. Nowhere in the verse in Hebrew does it ever say his hands were pierced. And so when I realized in the original language in Hebrew that this verse is not at all a prophecy about him, it's, it's King David actually discussing um, that his enemies were after them and they were like lions at his hands and feet. The verse has nothing to do with the Messiah. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And it, nowhere in the entire verse does it ever say that he is, you know, that his hands were pierced. It says ka'ari, which anyone who speaks Hebrew, and even if you look in Christian interlinear translations, um, it will show you ka'ari means like a lion. And so there were so many things. So we have, he's not of Davidic lineage because he has no father, or he has a father, in which case it's not a virgin birth and he's not the son of God. So it was one or the other, and neither of them really logically added up. Um, there was no prophecy about his hands and feet being pierced. These were complete mistranslations. And so as I began to really look, what was, what were the Jews waiting for when they were waiting for a Messiah? So something that always kind of sat in the back of my mind was why did none of the Jews accept their own Messiah? If all of the Jews were waiting and all these learned men are in Jerusalem and there's a temple and they're waiting on their Messiah, their Messiah comes and they all say, no, that's not him. That wasn't very logical to me because I figured that at least a, a, a substantial group of people would accept them. And the learned men, for sure, the men who learned Torah, the men who knew Hebrew, the men that were the, the men sitting in the study halls learning, learning the Old Testament, they surely would have seen that he was the Messiah. And so as I began to look at this, I was really, really overwhelmed when I started to actually look at what the Jewish concept of a Messiah actually is. And so when you start to go through the verses that are about the Messiah, when it says that he will return all the people to the land, that there will, you know, that everyone will lay down their plowshares, that there will be peace, that the whole world will have knowledge of God, that no one will have to ask their brother or teach their brother, that everyone will know God. Everyone will know God. And so I thought to myself, Jesus didn't do that. 
you know, Jesus said, I did not come to be a priest, but the sword, um, you know, Jesus did not bring any of these things. And so I was, I was really starting to look and I'm saying, okay, so he, he wasn't from the line of David. So he wasn't the Davidic king that we were waiting on. He would never have been crowned king in Israel. Um, either he was a illegitimate child of a woman who had an affair or he was, he didn't have a father, which made him God, which still didn't make him the Davidic king. So neither of those logically, um, worked out for me. And so as I began to completely dissect everything that I was taught, everything, and, and we have to question, we have to begin to say, I want to know why I believe what I believe, and is it actually right? Do I believe it because my pastor told me? Do I believe it because I read it in a translation of a translation of a translation? And so I began to search. Um, I showed up at the door of a synagogue, and I, I studied Hebrew, and I began learning, and I wanted to learn how to translate words and read the Hebrew alphabet and be able to translate a word for myself and look it up. And the more and more I did this, and the more and more I looked at the Torah and the Old Testament from a Hebrew context, the less and less this concept worked. Um, the next thing for me that was a really, really, really like thing for me is Psalms 146.3. So Psalms 146.3 says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in the son of man in whom there is no salvation. This was a very, very big moment for me because 81 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to or refers to himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man. In Hebrew, Ben Adam, the Son of Man. So in Matthew, 30 times. In Mark, 14 times. In Luke, 25 times. And in John, 12 times. Jesus is referred to or refers to himself as the Son of Man. And Psalms says very, very, very clearly in Psalms 146.3, do not put your trust in princes or in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. And the next verse goes on, and I'm paraphrasing this part because I don't know it by heart, basically states, because when his breath is taken from him, he dies, he returns to the ground, and he can't do anything else for you. This is the problem. And it says, praise be the man who, whose trust is in the God of Jacob not in the Son of Man. So this was a complete contrast. What do I do with 81 times he's called the Son of Man over and over and over again? He refers to himself and others refer to him. And yet the Old Testament says, do not trust and put your trust in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation, no salvation at all. And as I began to see this, this was, this was like, wait a minute. I can't put my trust in the Son of Man. The Son of Man is my Messiah. This is the person I've based my entire life on. I've been told that I'm saved by his blood. I'm saved by this. I'm saved by that. All of these different things. And now I'm seeing this goes in complete opposition of what the Old Testament said. And the Old Testament says that it is forever, that God's word is forever. It, it, it comes back. It never comes back void. It, it's forever. It never changes. And the final thing for me that really, really hit me was going to Deuteronomy 13. So Deuteronomy 13, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't read my, 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 my Torah at the same time and I don't want to keep looking things up, but it basically says, if you read Deuteronomy 13, it says, if a, a prophet comes along, a, a miracle worker comes along, and this person, he gives a prophecy, and he shows miracles, and they happen, and they come true, and he tells you to do anything but what I have told you today, it is a test to see if you will go and worship other gods, or if you will remain true to the God of Israel. It is a test. 
And that is when the light bulb finally went off for me. And I realized at this point that there was no salvation in anything other than the God of Israel. The God of Israel. God, one. He's one. Over and over again, he says, I am your Savior. I am your Savior. There is no other. The Messiah that's coming is not our Savior. Hashem is our Savior. God is our Savior. And as I began to go through these things, Moshe warned us, if someone comes, even if they do miracles, if they walk on water, if they heal people, if they raise people from the dead, it is not. It is a test. God is testing you. If you go and bow to someone else, you are breaking the Torah. You are going against the God of Israel. And so as I began to continue to see these, these signs, these things come up over and over again, I, I was in awe. And so it left me very confused. So anyone who's been raised in Christianity knows it says, if you deny him before man, he will deny you before the Father. So I was very in a very confused place, and I had so many questions. And I cannot count how many pastors I went to and spoke to privately um, and said, look, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says this, and it says that, that you know, you don't trust the Son of Man. There's no salvation in him, and yet the New Testament tells me that he's the only way to salvation. I don't understand. Like, these are complete contradictions. So either God's a liar or the New Testament's a liar. And Hasashalom, the God's a liar. So this is where I began to start and question. And I started to realize there was this middleman. And, and it, it, it dawned on me that I was that person in Deuteronomy 13 that had failed the test. I was worshiping Jesus. I was bowing to Jesus. A man in which the Old Testament is very clear, you don't need a middleman. Exactly, Irving just put, there's no barrier between man and Hashem. Absolutely the truth. We do not need a middleman. And even when the Jewish Messiah does come, it is not a middleman. It, 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 Hashem, we have a direct connection to, create, to speak to our Creator directly, to talk to our Creator. And we have no middleman. He demanded that we never have a middleman. And, and it reminded me of, you know, um, at the time at Mount Sinai, when, when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments and he's up on the mountain and he's gone so long and the people start to believe that he's gone and he's dead. And what do they do? Make themselves a god. They make themselves a middleman to worship. This is exactly what they did at the base of Mount Sinai, Har Sinai. This is what they did. They created a golden calf. They created a middleman. Um, another really interesting contract, contact, um, concept for me to grasp was over and over again, I had been told that he was the Passover lamb. He was the Passover offering that was given for our sins to atone for us. So then I started looking at what the Passover offering was. And from a Hebrew context, when we start to realize what the, the, the actual lamb the Passover lamb was, the Passover lamb was a Egyptian deity. The Egyptians worshipped lambs. They worshipped them, okay? And so in front of all of the Egyptians, all of the Israelites slaughtered their gods and smeared them on their doors as a sign that your gods are not gods. Only the God of Israel is God. And so then when I realized that Christianity is referring to Jesus as this Passover lamb, as this lamb that represented the Egyptians' idolatry, that was smeared over the doorposts in boldness, stating that only the God of Israel saves, only the God of Israel. 
these contradictions could not match. They, they didn't match, guys. And as I began to really continue to dig and dig and dig and dig, I, I found more and more and more discrepancies. There's there's a website, and I'll, I'll gladly post it in the comments if anyone's interested. You know, push a like, and I'll, I'll post it in the comments. It explains that there are 194 discrepancies in the New Testament, and that's just within itself. That not to mention all of the discrepancies that go with the Old Testament. And so I really I wanted to have this time to discuss this, not to attack anyone, not to go against anyone, but to simply explain that, you know, I've had a lot of people say, oh, she lost her mind, she became Jewish, you know, what's, what's going on with this girl? Um, that's not the case. I spent almost five years, the last five years, studying, learning the language, learning every detail of why I believed what I believed and why I've just made the decision to become Jewish. Um, for me, the more and more and more I looked at these verses and the more and more things did not align, I had to ask really hard questions. I had to say, is what I was raised truth? Is Christianity truth? Is Jesus the only way? Is he the salvation? You know, um, the other the other concept was um, everyone says that he died for our sins and he was the offering. He was the sin offering for our sins. And as I began to learn, and as we begin to learn the Old Testament, the, the Tanakh and the, the Torah, you begin to realize that sin offerings could only be given for unintentional sins. So I could not intentionally steal something or do something intentionally and then walk in and give an offering and be atoned for it. It didn't work that way. It never worked that way and it never will work that way, Baruch Hashem. Um, sin offerings were simply for sins that we did unintentionally to atone for our sins. And so Jesus, even if he was by some way, the, the sin offering, the sin offering could have only been for unintentional sins and didn't cover any of the things I've ever done on my, on, on my own. And the only way that the Old Testament, that the Tanakh, that, 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 that God has, has over and over again has said, repent and return exactly ezekiel 17 we repent and we return we repent and we turn from our ways and he makes us white as snow this is what our creator has always expected and it's what he will always expect of us this does not change it never will change and so as we begin to understand why we believe what we believe, why we don't believe what we won't believe. Um, I, I felt that I needed to make this public statement to under so people could understand why I made the decision. I didn't lose my mind. This wasn't something haphazardly. Danielle just didn't go crazy and decide to become Jewish for no reason. This was a very, very serious and a very, very educated decision that I made over a period of five years of studying, of learning. It was probably the most educated decision. Um, you know, I tell everybody, thank you for correcting that, is um, Irving and Siegel. 18, not 17. Um, I did not, you know, when, when most people are Christian, you become a Christian, they get saved, right? At one point in time, they just, they get saved. And you are standing there and you're listening to the sermon and it's telling you that, you know, you're nothing and you're going to go to hell and, and you're never anything without this person. Without this person, you're lost. Without this person, you can never make it. And so you come to, you know, an altar normally crying, ashamed, afraid, you're going to die, you're going to hell. And you make this emotional decision with absolutely no facts and no basis for it. Only then I am helpless and I can't do this on my own and, and I need this guy to fix everything for me. And that 
is not what happens with joining, you know, deciding to become a Jew or deciding to follow Torah. Um, it is an educated decision where you need to learn that there's, you know, there's cause and effect and there's, there's consequences for our sins and there's no get out of jail free card. And I remember one of the very last, like, kind of light bulbs that came off for me in my journey as I was sitting with a Jewish gentleman and he said to me, and he goes, no, don't disrespect. I know you're Christian, but I have no, I have one question for you. Why do Christians believe that we were sinners and so God had to send his son because we were sinners to die for us, but because he died for us, we get to keep doing sins. And I sat there in silence because it's not logical. Even if, you know, I'm a speeder and I get a speeding ticket and my father pays the ticket, that doesn't mean I get to keep speeding. So the concept that by, by someone atoning for your sins, you somehow get to keep sinning is not a logical concept. And so I really, I, I, you know, this is, these are the decisions that, you know, when, when I began to look at things objectively and not emotionally, because, you know, Christianity was something very emotional. I was very attached. Um, you know, I say, um, Jesus was my imaginary best friend my whole life. Um, and I, I was very dependent on him. I was, you know, this, this was my savior. This was, this was, you know, the end all be all. And so I wanted to be really, really clear again, that this, this video is in no attempt to insult Christians or their faith. This is me explaining my reasons to, you know, probably the 500 people who have asked me why I made the decision to convert to Orthodox Judaism and why I left Christianity. And so this is, I want to again, you know, clarify that this isn't in any way meant to be a form of disrespect. This is meant to um, explain that I made very logical decisions based on, by, based on the actual Bible, not on feelings, not on emotion, not on what I liked. Because, um, you know, I, I, was, I was a fan of bacon. I, I was a fan of, you know, going out on Saturdays and, and having fun and being on the lake. So it was definitely not something that I, I made this decision based on truth and seeking truth. And so as I began to look at just the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, so the first commandment is, you know, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not bow to other gods. And I realized that how often do we go to a church and we bow, we bow to Jesus, we we bow to statues, you know, in Catholicism we have statues and we have we have priests and we or we have saints and we have all of these different things that we bow to. And the very first commandment is don't bow to idols, don't bow to statues. Any graven image, any any formed carved image, we don't bow to, we don't pray to. And and you know, and it's in Christianity, that's exactly what we do. And, you know, as the more and more I began to see that I was able to have a direct connection with my creator without a middleman, that I was not hopeless, that I did not need to be dependent on a middleman to have a relationship with my creator. I did not have to um, buy into the lie that I was I was hopeless and that I couldn't save myself um, because the you know the Tanakh and the Torah is full of verses that say repent and return be perfect before me you're set apart you're a kadosh people over and over again Hashem tells us repent return to me and I will you know I'll make you white as snow nowhere did he say that someone else had to come and die for my sins so that I could keep sinning this is the this is the this is the part that didn't really didn't add up to me. So someone else died for my sins, so I would be allowed to keep sinning. 
that, that, that's not logical. You know, even, even as a mother, I, I would not get my child out of trouble to allow them to keep doing what it was they got in trouble. It, it's not logical. No loving parent would do this. No loving parent would do this. It's not even logical. Nor can someone else die for the sins of another person. The Torah over and over is very, very clear that no man shall die for another man's sins, that every man shall die for his own sin. Every man will make account, and, and Christianity feeds our ego. And that's one of the things that I realized is Christianity fed my ego. I have this big imaginary friend in the sky, and he is going to save me, and I can do whatever I want, and he's going to give me a get-out-of-jail-free card simply because I believe in him. And it was comforting, and it was, um, it was, it was comfortable. It was comfortable to think, you know, yay, I could do anything wrong, and... You know, because of Jesus, I'm, I'm forgiven. Um, but the more and more and more I began to search and the more I began to be honest with myself and, and just what is justice? Is, is an innocent person dying for my sins justice in any way? Um, does that somehow atone for my sins? It, it doesn't, you know. And, and again, I go back to the fact that sins were only, uh, sin offerings were only given when the temple was standing, obviously, um, for unintentional sins. So none of my intentional sins would have even been covered by Jesus anyway. So every time I got mad and hit someone, every time I did something intentionally, I wouldn't have been atoned for anyways. And there's lots of examples in the Tanakh and the Old Testament um, where we see, you know, Zavita Malik, when he, when, when he was with Bathsheba, he didn't go give a sin offering. He did not give a sin offering. Um, he repented and he, you know, came back and he begged and he pleaded. He did not give a sin offering. So exactly, thank you, Irving, for bringing that up. That's actually one of my next on my list is Isaiah 53. So the next thing people say is Isaiah 53, and it explains the suffering servant, right? The suffering servant. Um, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 51 and Isaiah 55. All of the verses before and after, all the way if you go right back to Isaiah one and read the entire chapter. The entire verse is talking about Israel, my servant, Israel, my suffering servant, Israel, my son, Israel, my firstborn, Israel, 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 Israel. Okay. So we have to remember to look at things in context. And one of the things that I realized that in Christianity, it states, it teaches like they teach you a concept and then they say, turn to page and read this verse. And you read the verse and it seems to fit. But I could open a JCPenney catalog, right? And I could say to you that on, open oh, page 47 and it's going to show you that the red shirt is the shirt for you. And you're going to open it up and I'm going to say, read line 17. And it says, the shirt comes in red. That is not prophecy, guys. That is putting an arrow in a wall and then drawing the target around it. It's a false sense of truth. It is not a net. It is not truth. And it doesn't stand up when it's tested. And so this is where, you know, for me, when I began to really look at all of these things and see, wait a minute, these things aren't lining up. It's not logical that someone else dies for my sins. I get away with it and I get to keep sinning. It doesn't make sense that the very Ten Commandments that God gave on Mount Sinai, we ignore so he says, you know, don't worship idols, don't have any other gods before me. And yet we say, oh, but he's kind of you because he's your son, so we're going to worship him. 
even though he's very, very clear, don't worship anyone else. And if someone comes and they do miracles, right? Deuteronomy 13, and they do miracles and they do signs. If they walk on water, if they jump through hoops, whatever they do, don't go and do something different than what I've already told you. And so this is, this was the key for me. And it's about critical thinking and it's about questioning what we believe. And if what we believe is true, we will know that it's true. And something that really hit me is, you know, we always talk about in Christianity, I live by faith and not by sight. I live by faith and not by sight, right? Well, Judaism is the opposite because we live by sight. We live by what we know. And over and over and over again, the Torah doesn't say, believe in me, have faith in me. He says, know that I am God. And when 600,000 men, not including the women and children, were standing at Mount Sinai and they all heard God speak and they all received the Torah at once, they didn't have to believe. They knew. And for generation after generation after generation, the Jews have held to this same Torah. They have, you know, they have ebbed and flowed. They have made their mistakes. You know, the, I always joke with everyone that the Torah is a complete chronicle of every mistake a Jew ever made, kicked out of the land, and they worshiped an idol again, and here's a golden calf, and here's a this. And unfortunately, Christianity is exactly that same thing. It's another golden calf that was formed as a middleman that keeps us from connecting directly to the creator we were meant to create know to connect to the the one who made us the the person that's our designer we don't connect with we we connect with this middleman in the middle and so i I've, I've gone through so many different things um i can't even think of all of the different concepts and i'm actually in the process of putting a list together of kind of the things in an organized fashion if anyone wants i can definitely send it out to you if you want to comment in the comments i will send you kind of a list of all of the findings that I had so you can research them for yourself. I don't ask anybody to take my word for it. Um, I just, I, I wanted to make this statement. I've been very quiet and I, I was very careful not to offend. I have many Christian friends that I love and adore and I value and I did not want to offend or hurt anybody. Um, but I, I've been asked this question so many times that I finally said, you know what, I have to have the guts to tell the truth. And the God of Israel is the truth. And I, I, I owe it to him and I owe it to every person that is seeking truth to to, to say, I'm going to show you truth. I'm going to, I'm going to say, this is what the Torah says. This is the problem. And this is, you know, this is where these things come into play. And so my decision was definitely not haphazard. My decision was definitely not something I made, um, based on emotion. I made this decision because my desire was to serve my creator in the most pure form. And, um, for me, like I said, it started with looking at the holidays, you know, researching the, the history of the holidays and that they were all pagan, that the name Easter is named after Ishtar, which is a pagan deity. Um, sunrise service, again, is based off of the pagan rituals that were done as the sun was reborn and dies. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a very, it's very complex when you look at history. And the biggest one for me was going back again to the Ten Commandments, because I think we can all agree on the Ten Commandments, um, is that my Sabbath is holy and you shall keep my Sabbath. You shall keep my Sabbath forever. It, this is my Sabbath and you shall keep my Sabbath. And his Sabbath is Saturday. And... Yet, when I researched the history of the church, how did the church come to have church on Sundays? So as I began to research, it goes all the way back to Constantine, about the year 325, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he declared that 
so he had he had an empire he was trying to divide and so he had he had Jews in his empire and he also had on the other side he had you know all of his pagans and he is trying to have a, a unified place and so back then everyone worked six days a week nobody had you know nobody had Saturday and Sunday off and so he was like I've got to I've got to combine this and so he combined Saturday and Sunday and declared that Sunday would be the day that everyone worshipped and to this day everyone goes to church on Sundays because Constantine a pagan emperor and said known sun worshiper um, declared that everyone would go to church on the day of the sun sun day the day of sun worship and when I realized that I was really really um, overwhelmed I guess to say the least and I'm like wait a minute we worship on the wrong day because of a pagan concept we we you know um, Christmas trees and 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 Easter eggs and, and the origins of the Easter bunny and all of these things are very, very pagan. And, and some Christians don't follow all of those things, but the sunrise service is something every Christian serves and it has a pagan concept in the, in the base of it, the name Easter itself. Um, the other really big issue that I had was on certain years, depending on the year, Passover will happen after Easter. Um, I believe this year it was actually in alignment, but the year before, um, Passover was an entire month after Easter, and I kept going, how can they have Easter before Passover? Because Jesus supposedly died on Passover, which is a month later, so how is Easter? And so then I actually researched how Easter was, um, thank you, worshiping Tammuz on the day of the sun. Some of these people in these comments are very educated. Um, they set the calendar based on sun worship and the sun, and so Easter instead of following the lunar calendar, which is what the Jews have always followed and how Passover is set every year, um, they decided to switch it to the sun um, calculation. And that is why Easter on many, 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 many um, years falls almost a complete month before Passover ever happened, simply because they were not going to follow the ways of the Jews. They instead wanted to follow the way of the pagans. And so as we begin to look at the history of Judea of Christianity and the pagan origins and all of the things that just don't coincide, they, they don't line up, they're not logical. You know, um, this imaginary guy died for me, therefore I get to do whatever the heck I want whenever I do, and I've got a free get out of jail pass, and I have zero accountability in my life, as long as I say a prayer and I apologize. And so as we begin to really look at how, you know, how that looks, and then, you know, I again began to start looking again um, further, 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 digging, digging, digging. And I started to look at some of the messages that came in the New Testament. So we see the Old Testament, it's like eye for an eye, you steal this, this, everything is justice, everything is fair, everything is, you know, if you do this, you're dead. If, if you know, if you steal, you have to give back. If you do this, you do this, you know, eye for an eye, everything is about, you know, equality and justice and fairness. And then you get to the New Testament, it says, turn the other cheek. Slave, obey your master, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So as we begin to look at the New Testament, you can completely see the Roman influence in now we're going to plug all these concepts and these subliminal messages into the New Testament to ensure our people stay enslaved. Slaves, obey your slave master. Turn the other cheek. Don't fight back. Don't fight back. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. No Jew would tell you give to Caesar what is Caesar's 
if it was not lawful, if it was not fair. And in this concept, you have to, you have to really pay attention to what justice is and, and what Christianity was actually teaching. Christianity was teaching slavery, mental slavery. And so then I looked historically, you know, when, when was Christianity used? Christianity went into, into Africa and colonized it, and they sent missionaries everywhere, and they completely devastated the entire continent of Africa, completely bankrupted it, took all of its natural resources, and left it in complete poverty, and gave them Jesus, and said, turn the other cheek. For the fear of, you know, going to hell. What did they do to the Native Americans? They dragged them into missions and they force converted them or killed them and slaughtered them. And they told them, turn the other cheek, obey your slave master. This is what Christianity was used historically for. It was used to control, it was used to conquer, and it was used to dominate. And as I really, really began to take a, a I guess, a more objective look of the history of Christianity, um, I began to read all of the um, the writings of Martin Luther and many of the founding, you know, people of Christianity. Martin Luther um, instructed everybody to take all of the, the Jews into their synagogues, take all of their books and burn them alive, that they were rats and that they were vermin and that they needed to be extinguished. Um, this is Martin Luther. This is the Protestant, ref you know, this is the Protestant Reformation. This is the founder of Protestant Christianity that I had based my entire life on, was literally explaining that he wanted people to be dragged in and slaughtered because they would not convert to, to worship his, his fake God that he was so insistent that everyone had to worship. Um, and so I really want, I really want to, um, I guess I just wanted to express myself. I wanted to explain this. I, I hope I was not disrespectful in any way. Um, again, I have the fullest and utmost respect for, and love for many of my friends who happen to be Christian and are, are Catholic. You know, most of my family is, and, and a lot of people have just really not understood why I made the decision that I made. And so I wanted to just kind of get myself, give myself some time to get that out there and explain, you know, that I didn't lose my mind. I, I didn't um, I didn't make an emotional decision, you know, at an altar one day and said, oh, yes, I'm going to die without this person. No, I studied and I learned and I and I had to strip myself down of so many things that I had been taught, that I had been fed, that my, I had been, you know, just completely brainwashed into believing. And so I question I, I, I challenge everyone study the Bible. Study the Old Testament. So we know that the Old Testament came first, and this is the Word of God. And over and over again, He says it never ends. So I just want to I want to summarize really quickly with you know the virgin birth mentioned in Isaiah seven fourteen in Hebrew the word is Alma. It is not Betula. It does not mean virgin. It does not imply that there was ever a virgin birth. In Psalms twenty two sixteen, it does not say His hands were pierced. It says Ka Ari, like a lion at my hands and feet. It's King David, David Amalek, um, discussing the lions attacking, um, you know, that his enemies attacking like lions at his hands and feet. Um, if Jesus was born of a virgin, he did not fulfill the prophecy of being the Davidic king because the Davidic king has to be son of son of son of son of son of all the way from King David, all the way in an unbroken father line to Jesus. Um, if you look at, I, I want to say it's Matthew and Luke. Please don't quote me. It might be Mark and Luke. Um, there are two lineages given of Jesus. Both go to Yosef, who was not his father, and they are both completely different. One goes through um, King Solomon and one goes through his brother. They're completely contrasting and different um, 
different lineages that completely are different. You can look at them side by side, and when you see them, they're totally different. So how does Jesus' father have two completely different lineages in the perfect word of God that the New Testament is? And so I, I really challenge everybody to look at that. Um, I look... I challenge everyone to look at Isaiah 146.3 again. It says, Do not put your trust in princes or in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. And again, I repeat, 81 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. 30 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 25 times in Luke, and 12 times in the book of John. Matthew and Luke, thank you, Scotty. Um, I wasn't sure if it was Mark or Matthew, getting a little rusty on that. And I also challenge everyone to read Deuteronomy 13. This is Moses' warning after he gives the Torah to all of the Israelites. And he basically is very, very clear. And he states, if somebody comes and he does miracles and he does wonders and he does prophecies, and even if they come true, and he tells you, go and bow to other gods or do anything other than what I have instructed you to do right here, it's a test. You're being tested. If you're going to keep serving the God of Israel or if you are going to fall and you are going to serve other gods. And for me, um, that was a very, very heartbreaking moment for me when I realized that the God I was fighting so hard to serve was actually, I was actually doing things that were in complete opposition of him. I was worshiping a man. I was worshiping a man that I, I actually had no real evidence that either existed. I had, I had multiple different things. When I went to pastors, pastors weren't able to answer my question. I was, I was asked to leave buildings. I was, I was told to be quiet. Um, when I, when I asked more questions, um, I, I had several pastors say, you know what, you're right. The law was never done away with. We just teach that because it's easier. Um, I had another pastor tell me that you are so much braver than me. I wish I was so brave as you as to go on this journey. Um, I had another another pastor tell me, you're, you know, I know that it's true. The law is not done away with. We should be keeping the feast. We should be keeping Shabbat. We should be keeping all of these things. And so I, I was really shocked. Um, and again, anyone who knows me and, and knows my parents, knows the way that I was raised. I was a very, very devout Christian. And I, I, I dedicated my entire life to Christianity and to serving people and to, you know, to missions trips. And so... Um, I wanted to share my journey because it's it's not something, I didn't want to attack anybody, I didn't want to put anyone down. I wanted to explain that this is why I made the decision I made. It wasn't haphazard, it wasn't uneducated, um, and it's a decision a lot of people are making as they're choosing to begin to search and to read and, and read for yourself, study for yourself. Don't take anything that I'm saying. Um, a book that was extremely helpful for me in my journey was called Let's Get Biblical. It's a, it's a commentary by um, Rabbi Tobia Singer that basically shows all of the discrepancies in the Christian Bible and the mistranslations and shows you the actual Hebrew translation. And I even took that book and I went back and I checked every single fact and I googled and I looked up and I made sure that even every fact in that book was correct before I you know began to learn it and so I, I challenge everyone to to seek truth um, to know that you do not need a middleman between you and your creator that you are meant to be have direct contact with him whether that's to be a Jew or that's to just be a Gentile and to have one God and to worship one God so if anyone has any questions Deuteronomy 17 um, Yes, Irving, thank you. I wasn't really going to get into that. Um, Irving asked me about Deuteronomy 17, um, and it tells us to listen to the high courts, and laws are never done away with. He's correct. Um, so a another standard um, question that came up for me was people saying, well, how do you know that you know the Jews, they've changed things, they've moved things in the courts, and the this and the that, and um, there's a verse, and I, 
I want to say it's Deuteronomy 17, but don't quote me, Irving. I will post in the comments if I'm incorrect. Um, but Deuteronomy 17 is very, very clear, and it states that if you have a matter that's unclear to you, and it, it, you know, you are to bring it before the the Kohen and the judges of that day, and you're supposed to come before him, and whatever they rule, you are not to look to the right or the left, and anyone who does is killed. It's, it's, it's immediately the death penalty per the Torah for someone to not trust the Jewish court. So um, God, in his amazing wisdom, he put in place a, a, a court of 70 elders, and they had to be righteous, and they had to have amazing, um, um, they had to have amazing, um, I'm sorry, I'm losing the word, um, reputations, they had to be known as, you know, these amazing people without, you know, any errors, and, you know, these high, high people, and 70 of them would all come together, and they would all rule as one. They all had to come together and they would all make a decision and we had to go by that rule because that ensured 70 righteous learned men that knew the Torah, yes, also known as the Sanhedrin. Many people don't know what that's called so I try to use little words. They would all come together and they would rule and we were ordered to follow the rulings of them forever and that it was never going to be done away with and God's law would never be done away with and that the Torah would never be done away with and that, you know, we would never suddenly have permission to eat pork and we would suddenly never have permission to not keep a Saturday and to change something to Sunday by the authority. Um, the actual document from the Catholic Church was interesting. I actually pulled it up, the actual historic document that says, by the authority of the Catholic Church, we have deemed the day of worship to now be Sunday instead of Saturday as the Jews. That's literally by the authority of the Catholic Church and every Protestant church today that still worships on a Saturday, on a Sunday still chooses to do that. Um, in addition to obviously if they're if they're worshiping Jesus, they're unfortunately violating the you know the first and second commandments of, of, of the Torah of the of the Ten Commandments. So um, I hope this was helpful. I hope that um, it, it brings some questions to mind. I hope that if, if, if for nothing else, that it brings clarity to many of my friends and family that have wondered, you know, why is this girl with her hair, you know, hair um, covered? Why did she move to Israel? Why is she living in Israel? There's, you know, so many factors um, that have changed. And it's all because I've learned and I've studied and I've connected to my creator. And so I would love everybody, if you want, um, if you're just tuning in, feel free to listen from the very beginning. And if you have any further questions, feel free to reach out to me. I am open, but I've, I've, I had literally about 500 people People ask me why I left Christianity and so I felt it was easier to really just kind of get all of this information out there and like I said in the um, as soon as I'm done with the full compilation I will attach it to this video so everybody can get it um, if they want to be able to look up those verses and see those verses for themselves and, and understand that so I hope this was helpful everyone have a wonderful day bye